Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors Series. My name is Amanda White. I'm editor of top1000funds.com and director of institutional content at Connexus Financial. It's my pleasure to be joined today by Professor Warwick J. McKibben, who is a distinguished professor of economics and public policy and director of the Centre for Applied Macroeconomic Analysis in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Among other things, Warwick is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Centre on Regulation and Markets at Brookings Institution, and he's internationally renowned for his contributions to global economic modelling, the theory of monetary policy, climate change policy, and economic modelling of pandemics. Needless to say, he's been quite busy of late. Today, we're going to talk about inflation, war, pandemics, climate change, and how central banks are equipped or not to deal with the increased macroeconomic uncertainty. Welcome to you, Warwick. Thanks so much for being with us. Delighted to be here, Amanda. Thanks for the invitation. So let's start talking about inflation broadly speaking, Warwick. In the US, the CPI rose by 7.9% through February this year, which is the fastest pace of annual inflation in 40 years. So I'm interested in talking about the capacity for central banks to forecast inflation and whether that has actually collapsed. Do you think that notion has any truth to it? And do you think central banks even understand how inflation works anymore? Well, inflation is caused either by um, changes in demand or changes in supply or both. And what we've seen historically during the 70s was um, inflation caused largely initially by oil price shocks, but then uh, accommodating monetary policy, stimulating demand. Uh, What we're seeing now is a combination of supply shocks coming from um, COVID pandemic, coming from climate change, coming from a number of places, as well as the demand shocks. Different amounts in different countries, because some countries have had massive fiscal stimulus. Other countries uh, have had less so because they don't have the capacity to expand the budget a great deal. That's particularly true in emerging countries. Uh, and you are seeing in, um, in, in a number of countries, uh, interest rates are already rising, especially in the emerging world, but not so much in the advanced world. Now, um, most of the modern central banks that do inflation targeting uh, as a policy framework, they tend to do their forecast of inflation based on an idea of the output gap. That's what the difference between what they think potential output looks like in the future and what actual output is uh, over the projection period. So if you're expecting output to be rising more quickly than potential, that that output gap uh, is driving uh, a forecast of an increase in inflation. And so they're watching very carefully this gap. Now, as it turns out, um, the evidence is over the last 20 years in many countries uh, that that output gap forecast has actually broken down. And so one of the problems is if you can't forecast inflation very well because you can't forecast the output gap, then the central banks uh, start to lose credibility uh, on their inflation forecasts because they keep missing inflation uh, year after year. And this has been true up until COVID, uh, central banks in fact, we're debating whether or not there was a deflationary impulse in the world economy. Uh, and then COVID came along and everything changed. So presumably with the war in Ukraine and surging gas prices, there's more inflation to come. Is that, are we able to predict that? Um, what's your best estimate of the next quarter and moving forward, what inflation is going to look like? Well, it's actually incredibly complex because it's not just what's happening into uh, oil prices, but it's feeding into gas, it's feeding into demand for coal, it's feeding into a whole range of different uh, increases in demand because of the cut, cutting off of uh, oil supplies from Russia. 
But actually, Russia and Ukraine are also very important in world agricultural markets. And so in terms of wheat production, they're at 40% of global wheat production. Uh, this is going to feed through as a price shock in, in agriculture and food particularly. Uh, and that itself uh, is, is very bad news for the emerging world because uh, food contain, is, is a much larger part of the budget of the poorest people on the planet. And so um, I don't do quarterly ahead forecasts. Uh, inflation will be higher next quarter in the world than it was this quarter. Um, but this, this is actually a very, very significant impulse to inflation on top of the inflationary impulse that central banks were already being concerned about. So you, you're in a, an interesting position. You do you spend considerable time consulting to central banks, including the ECB, and you spent a decade on the board of Australia's central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, sort of taking a, a, a sort of top-down view from your observations. What are central banks doing more broadly in the next three to 12 months and what should they be doing? Are they doing what they should be doing? Um, is there global coordination among central banks? Do you think that they will get inflation under control? And, you know, this is a bit of a long bow, but will they cause a recession either intentionally or unintentionally by their actions? That's a lot of good questions, Amanda. Um, what I, I think it's different for different central banks. So in the US, uh, clearly the, the, the Fed was uh, behind the curve. Inflation was rising. It was seen to be transitory. That was the word that was used. As it persisted, the central bank realised that inflation actually was higher and inflationary expectations were critical. Uh, if the inflation itself spills into higher inflationary expectations, then you start this wage price spiral, um, which we saw in the early 70s. Now, the Fed was ready and is ready to raise interest rates. Um, the market's predicting between five and six interest rate increases between now and the end of the year. That was before the war in, in um, Ukraine. Things have changed now because what we're seeing is I think the Fed will continue to raise interest rates. They, they really have to because inflation now is starting to build into expectations. But the problem is with the Ukrainian shock, it's an increase in prices, but a reduction in world demand. And for the US, it's not such a big shock. Uh, it's a totally different issue for the European Central Bank. But for the US, my guess is that the, the Fed will continue to raise interest rates. They have to be very clear in how they communicate the reasons of the increasing interest rates. There's a lot of sensitivity in the US economy. Budgets are being squeezed by higher oil prices uh, at the pump. Uh, and so it will lead uh, to a, a very um, significant change in the demand conditions within the US economy. But I think the Fed has to start to raise interest rates. They've already stopped quantitative easing of buying assets. And now I think they're going to be in a tightening cycle. Uh, the ECB was also ready to start raising interest rates um, before the Ukraine-Russian war. Now, however, we're seeing a very big difference in the shock that's hitting Europe versus what's hitting the US. Europe is highly integrated with Russia in the energy systems. Gas, Russia is a major supplier of gas to Europe. Um, Russia is a major supplier of coal to the German electric utilities. So there is a, there's a very significant economic slowdown coming through squeezing the, um, the energy system in Europe. If Europe does stop buying gas, uh, and, and and other um, asset uh, other fuels from the Russian economy that will cause a recession almost without doubt. And so there is this increased uncertainty in Europe, which is bad for investment, bad for demand. We have the supply side shocks coming from oil increasing in price dramatically, um, heating costs going up. So I think the ECB could continue on with a tightening cycle. Uh, that was the momentum that was underway up until a few weeks ago. I think that would be a mistake at this point because the 
shock in Europe is actually quite a severe shock and could easily cause a recession. Uh, and it'd be hard to imagine the ECB would want to be tightened policy in the middle of a recession. When it comes to other central banks around the world, again, very, very different in different countries. Um, the big issue for most emerging countries is what the Fed does. We saw with the temper tantrum um, um, uh, several years ago when the Fed started raising interest rates, um, it caused capital to flow out of emerging countries into the US economy. We're already seeing that happening even without the Fed changing policy, actually. That puts uh, downward pressure on exchange rates in these economies. That increases import prices and it puts up the pressure on inflation. And it also leads to potential for capital flight as well as uh, financial crises. So I think you'll see, um, my guess is you'll see Russia probably default on their debt. The Russian economy is being crushed, um, not by military action, but by economic action. And I think you'll find that that will propagate throughout the world as well. So there's a risk for increased financial crises in a number of emerging countries. Uh, and that's a very, very delicate point in the world economy um, the central banks have to manage. In the end, however, I think it's a mistake to rely just on central banks to deal with what's happening in the world. You really need to refocus uh, at least three different arms of macro policy. Fiscal policy has to play a role. Climate policy has to play a role. And monetary policy has to play a role. And so it makes no sense for a central bank to act alone it's this balancing act that needs every tool in the arsenal. And I think the climate policy is a key one that's not being used or thought about as a macroeconomic instrument. But in fact, I think that's where potential for strong investment and productivity growth can come from. Uh, and so I think really all macro needs to be focused on the problems of the world phases. Yeah, look, we'll come to the you know climate policy as a tool in, in a moment, but I just want to explore this a little bit more the supply side shocks and how that is changing the nature of, of monetary policy. So you've said before that rather than criticise past central bank decisions, that the focus should be on whether targeting nominal income might be the best monetary policy framework in a world that is dominated by supply side shocks. So, you know, from a framework point of view, how should central banks be looking at monetary policy? Well, just to be clear um, to the listeners about what, what we mean by supply shock, um, if you have, for example, a drought, uh, a drought is a supply shock. So uh, there's less being produced and that causes the economy to slow down and that causes inflation to rise because uh, the scarcity of, of, of goods and therefore you end up with paying high prices to get uh, that scarce quantity. So that's a case where inflation is rising and output is falling. Now, in that case, the central bank um, whose policies might be designed around demand shocks, sees the higher inflation. If they then raise interest rates to tackle inflation, they make the output losses larger. They increase the unemployment rate by more. So really, most central banks really have a dual mandate, conceptually at least. Uh, and so even though they might say they're inflation targeted, they do actually worry about unemployment in the economy. And so therefore, uh, you have this problem under a supply shock. Uh, they, they have to actually use either tighten policy because they say they're inflation targeted, or they have to not, not tighten policy and explain why this is a special circumstance that their mandate, although they're um, violating their mandate, they need to actually follow a different policy path. Now, the more often you get these supply shocks in the economy and the less often the central bank does what they said they do if they saw higher inflation, the less credible the central bank. And the quality or the, the way in which policy um, has its bigger impact is when the central bank is completely credible. And undermining the credibility of, of central banks by continually arguing they have inflation targeting 
And then up until two years ago, not hitting their inflation targets because they're coming in below their target. And now not hitting their inflation targets because they're coming in above their inflation target is, makes uh, the inflation targeting world um, a, a much more complicated world to be in when you have supply shocks. So what, what is the impact of, of a, a central bank that doesn't have credibility? Well, a, a complete loss of credibility leads to hyperinflation because people will be believing that the central bank is not going to do anything to bring inflation back down. That leads to higher wages, that leads to higher prices, that leads to higher wages. And so you end up getting to a situation. Now, it's normally a combination of the lack of credibility of the central bank plus the government printing, issuing lots and lots of debt. Uh, because normally in the in the longer term, it's the fiscal uh, impacts on inflation that actually drive the central bank to accommodate and finance the deficits that come from government spending, and that leads to that to a perpetual inflation cycle. Um, so it's really the combination of monetary and fiscal policies that leads to hyperinflation. But without credibility, a central bank has very little effect in the market. So let's move our attention then to to climate change and some of the work that you've been doing recently there. Um, climate change is a supply side shock and the impact of climate change can be massive on the on the global economy so broadly speaking can you outline for us why climate policy and climate shocks will be and already are impacting central bank thinking and how that is um, playing out yeah so um, what we've been looking at is and we're not just us there's lots of people now working in the space but what we've been trying to do in our models is is to work out uh, from the climate um, change point of view, what are the shocks that come from climate change itself? And so we've divided that into um, what we call uh, chronic climate change. That is an increase in temperatures persisting over time. That increase in temperatures has impacts on uh, productivity in the agricultural sector. It has impacts on labour participation, labour uh, efficiency. And so it, it has a, a negative supply effect uh, on production and employment uh, in economies. That's the chronic climate change. Now, on top of that, we've also tried to be tried to model um, extreme events. That is an increased frequency of of cyclones, hurricanes, forest fires, floods, um, a whole range of climate events, which also have impacts on productivity uh, and um, uh, labour supply efficiency. But different across different sectors, uh, and so we're trying to dig down into the sectoral impacts of climate change. So that's that's the, the um, physical risk. Those two characteristics are physical climate risk. The third aspect of climate change is how governments will respond with policy instruments. For example, a carbon tax or some other form of of uh, policy which will cause uh, carbon to become more expensive in the economy. So people substitute away from carbon to alternative energy sources and alternative ways of doing things to try and save money, so they can avoid the higher prices associated with the climate policy. That's also a supply shock uh, in the sense that higher input costs for using fossil fuels will increase electricity for economies that are uh, fossil fuel dependent in their generation. Uh, it'll increase the cost of transportation, particularly for economies that have high, um, amount, high transportation uh, using petroleum. And so that's a supply shock. There's also demand shocks actually as well in, in, in all those three aspects of climate change. It's predominantly supply shocks, but there's also demand shocks. And particularly on the climate policy, um, uh, the work we did for the International Monetary Fund in the World Economic Outlook in October 2020 um, looked at 
a policy mix of, of carbon pricing through a carbon tax plus green infrastructure spending. And the beauty of green infrastructure spending is the government steps into the market where the market doesn't provide the basic infrastructure that's needed. That in the short term is a demand stimulus, very much a Keynesian uh, increase in spending in the economy. But if it's done well, it also raises future productivity of the private sector. And so uh, you can get in the short term a demand stimulus and in the long term an expansion of productivity, which is offsetting the supply shock coming from climate change. And so uh, it, it seems like, again, three three parts of policy need to play a role and they're not all independent of each other. And I think it's a mistake to consider each of these issues separately because I think the central bank would have to be in there. So as inflation rises because of carbon pricing entering into the economy, the central bank shouldn't be tightening monetary policy to take that inflation shock out of the economy because that will slow down the economic uh, adjustment and increase the cost of taking action um, and reduce the benefits. So in that economic modelling, what is the best possible outcome in terms of meeting those climate change goals and keeping inflation at bay? Is there a policy recommendation um, that you can get out of that modelling? Well, one of the way we use these models is actually not trying to find the best policy because the uncertainty is enormous. Um, What we're trying to do is consider a whole range of different scenarios. And the way I think about good policies is to do minimum damage. Uh, Everyone has a different view of the world. These models are representative of a particular view of the world. So it may well be, I'd like to think of, take a policy and see how badly it performs in three different types of models because we're trying to to do disease damage. So rather than searching for optimal policy, which requires you to have the right model, um, we search for robust policy. Having said that, in the work we've done, um, it goes actually back to the the literature in the 50s and 60s about what monetary policy should target. Uh, Back in the old literature and and some work I did with Dale Henderson um, in the early 80s, um, we find that nominal GDP or nominal income targeting from a central bank's point of view is a much better strategy because you don't need to forecast inflation. What you need to do is estimate what you think your output potential output is announce what your inflation target is, and suppose it's 3% real growth and 3% inflation, you announce a nominal target of 6%. Now, if you achieve your target, it may well be that potential output came in at 2%, which means that inflation will come in at 4%. And the beauty of that is the central bank doesn't have to focus just on inflation, and the reaction to nominal growth is built into the rule. And what's very useful about that is that we get high-frequency data on nominal spending in the economy on a daily basis supermarkets, department stores, credit cards. There's a lot of information available in real time that central banks can use to assess how they're going with their target. That's very different to an inflation target where it's it's an index that has to be constructed by a statistical agency and it it actually comes out well after the actual inflation has been experienced. So I think from a point of view of monetary policy, if you're worried about um, the climate issue, then you would have nominal income targeting. From the point of view of a carbon or climate policy, the two main ones are a carbon tax, which is a constant price rising over time, or what we call a cap and trade market, where you set an emissions target and a market will trade a price, which will be highly volatile. Now, a central bank would rather have a carbon tax or something like a carbon tax, which has a predictable long-term trend in inflation built into the price, uh, because that... That avoids the volatility problem that comes from cap and trade. 
So if a central bank could choose the optimal carbon policy, it would probably be something with a trend in the price but not a highly volatile market, which cap-and-trade tends to generate volatility in carbon prices and therefore got volatility in energy prices and therefore volatility in the price level. And so it's, it, when you consider each of these issues, you would argue for a very distinct climate policy, predictable carbon pricing, and a, and a nominal growth policy for central banks, and as well as a fiscal framework that, are, that is consistent with, um, with sustainable budget deficit um, and investment in infrastructures to support the climate transition. So is this modelling part of the work that you're doing for the network for greening the financial system? And can you tell us what the aim of that is? It's a sort of common starting point for analysing climate risks used by central banks and, and others. Is that the kind of main aim of it to sort of figure out how um, climate risks can impact their global economy and financial system? So we're, we've been doing this independently of the network for greening the financial system, but in conjunction, the NGFS, it's a group of over 70 institutions around the world, mostly central banks, have been developing different scenarios about how the future might evolve. Now, that, that information is being used both to look at financial stability, how, how will uh, national um, financial systems cope under these different scenarios, how do you stress test different institutions? Is their balance sheet robust to these different futures? So from a financial stability point of view, um, there's a lot of effort going into this from, and the work of the NGFS is, is very important for that. Um, the other side of this is what, what role central banks should have in their whole, um, in the climate change um, transition. That's a much more controversial issue because uh, some central banks or some central bankers think that uh, central banks should be buying assets um, with, with a particular green credential to try and change the relative price of different assets to it, it help with the climate transition. Um, that's not really the focus of the NGFS at this point, although uh, you, you could argue that some people are, are trying to push uh, that, that, that in that direction. Um, so my, my, my role actually is not to be called a core part of the scenario. They're using integrated assessment models, which are very large climate models up until now, but they're now experimenting with different types of models. And we were working on a prototype um, just to see how our model, which is called the GQ model, how it compares with what comes out of these very large-scale energy climate models. And so that's an ongoing relationship. Um, but there'll be some work published probably in May this year uh, looking at what our model says in comparison to what these other types of modelling approaches have said. Great. So so COVID-19, let's talk about COVID-19, shift towards that, and, you know, I want to end in a minute with talking about your work there, but, you know, COVID-19 has shown how a system-wide shock that hits the real economy can have significant effects on economic and financial outcomes, and I think there's parallels there with climate risk where if you've got sudden policy or behavioural changes, you know, that, that's when it can lead to, to stranded assets. So, you know, for the real economy to manage these risks, obviously we've got the, you know, public policy, but also finance is going to have to play a pivotal role in all of that. So what's your call to action for the private sector, which is mostly my listeners, in terms of the role that they play? Well, I mean, it's absolutely critical. Governments cannot... Get put together the amount of money that's the trillions of dollars that are required to to finance the energy transition. So it's really the the it's all in in the uh, in the lap of the private sector. Having said that, governments will have to set the framework 
They have to have very clear long-term policy strategies, which are bipartisan in different countries. Uh, you need a, a global as well as a national bipartisan approach. So it's very clear what the investment framework looks like so that for the private sector can come in. Um, the government needs to fill the spots that the private sector, when they act, uh, a, a company is acting in its own interest, it, it may not internalise all of the benefits of its action. And that's where government infrastructure can, not always, but can play a role. So the private sector really needs to be given very clear uh, incentives, very clear guidelines about where policy is heading, and then the private sector will come in. It's already, many firms are already moving, but risks are higher when you haven't got a clear framework coming from regulation and the government, uh, a government framework. And so I think it's important to get the government at the global level, at least of the major economies that are doing most of the greenhouse emissions to agree on a framework, and then the national government to agree on a framework. And then the private sector will be even more uh, financing of these adjustments than they currently are. So, Warwick, lastly, I want to alert listeners to the groundbreaking work that you did in forecasting the economic consequences of the pandemic or modelling them. I know that you'll um, correct me on, you don't give forecasts, but you do modelling. Um so three years now into the pandemic, what's, what are the models saying or about what's to come economically as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic? And, and perhaps if you can just frame that for listeners in terms of the work that you've done to model that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, thanks, Amanda. So the work we did, we started doing this at the end of December 2019 when we were getting information from China that there had been an outbreak of a, um, a coronavirus, um, a SARS coronavirus um, and we had done the original modelling for the World Health Organisation on SARS um, back in 2003, and we were in the process of actually doing some modelling on antimicrobial resistance. So we had everything set up, and then we got the data from China. So we did a report um, looking at seven different scenarios, and the paper's called Seven Scenarios. We had three scenarios where the, the outbreak stayed within China with different amounts of uh, case infection rates and case fatality rates based on the three major pandemics of the 20th century, the Spanish flu, the Hong Kong flu, and the Asian flu. That was the first three scenarios. The next three scenarios were, um, what if it's become the global pandemic? And so we modeled the transmission process, looking at the current state of the world economy and all the interconnectedness. And then the seventh scenario was, what if this is just recurring? And so uh, even though there would be some invention in 2020, what if this keeps mutating? And so we did a seventh scenario where we had persistent uh, evolution of the disease. Now, in that first uh, work, we, we basically had no information on lockdown. Um, we had no information on how governments would respond. We just used the, the um, epidemiological data on case, case infection rates and mortality rates, and we did a projection of the world. And we found a very large recession in the world economy under each of those scenarios, obviously the Spanish flu-like one was the most severe, but the numbers of, of amount of GDP loss was between three and, and, and $10 trillion, um, and, and a very large number of people would die. Now, that first study um, created a lot of controversy, but it was released to uh, a number of major central banks. I was in Washington at the time, and I briefed the World Bank and the IMF and the Fed, but also sent it out to all the various other central banks who I have a relationship with. And, and basically the argument was you want to stop the pandemic before it takes off because the change in behaviour was where all the costs were coming from. And so the public health measures had to be done first and there had to be support for the economy through fiscal spending and through um, a very uh, real, loose monetary policy. 
We then did two more reports over over the next 12 to 18 months because we started to get real data. So we didn't have to make up the epidemiological scenarios that were already happening in real time. We knew how governments were responding and we knew that a lot of countries were doing shutdowns, which wasn't in our original work. And it turned out the shutdowns themselves didn't add very much to the economic costs. They added to it, but not very much. Most of the change in behaviour was people were travelling, they weren't interacting in, in um, public spaces. So we had um, in various sectors, entertainment, uh, tra- uh, travel, tourism, et cetera, collapsing. Uh, and so we basically kept modifying the assumptions. Now, we haven't updated that work um, now since um, we did the last study for the Asian Development Bank at the end of, of, um, of or in early 2021. Um, I'm leaving it now to the epidemiologists to do the uh, various scenarios that come out of uh, the different mutations. Um, this is nowhere near being over. There's going to be continuous uh, emergence of the virus because we're not immunising enough people in the world. We are immunising in the advanced economies, but when you look at what's happening in the emerging countries in Africa, Latin America and poor parts of Asia, there is a, a very, very large pool of unvaccinated people and these types of viruses love that sort of um, uh, environment in which to uh, ch- change their their um, their behaviour. And so this isn't over until a whole world is vaccinated and that won't be happening for, for quite a few years. So we have to live with the uncertainty. Now, what that means, if you look at our scenario seven, which is the one of persistent um, uh, emergence of pandemics, basically it reduces the, increases the risk in the global economy. It reduces the amount of capital investment in the economy because of higher risk is bad for investment. Uh, and that leads to a more persistent low economic growth path for for period in the future. Uh, and so that's the key lesson is if you're going to invest, don't invest in in dealing with the pandemic, invent, invest in prevention. And prevention is all about public health in poor countries, uh, changing um, animal human interactions, but also investing in public health systems so that poverty, which creates disease, doesn't lead to the spillover effect. It's very expensive to deal with a pandemic once it's broken out and you cannot stop it at the border, as we've seen in the latest data coming out of Hong Kong and and, uh, China. And so really these prevention investments are really a great investment with a high rate of return. Well, Warwick, thank you so much for sharing uh, so much of your very important work. Um, It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Amanda.